Welcome to the Future Now Media Podcast, where we believe a future now is a future one. I'm your host, Peggy Kim, and I'm the founder and president of the Future Now Media Foundation, which is a nonprofit leadership incubator for the media and entertainment industry. In this podcast series, we'll be talking to some of today's top industry leaders, executives, and professionals. We'll also hear about their personal and professional career journeys, what makes them tick, how they got to where they are today, and what they've learned along the way. And we'll also share some of the best content from our Future Now live events. So stay tuned. What does it take to get to the C-suite? In today's episode, we'll hear from three senior executives, Roz Ho, Andel Castillo, and John Valade, who spoke on the Fireside C-Suite chat panel, which took place at the 2018 Future Now Media and Entertainment Conference. Roz Ho is the Senior Vice President and General Manager of the Consumer and Metadata Businesses at TiVo. Andel Castillo is the Chief Operating Officer and General Counsel for New York City's Mayor's Office of Media and Entertainment, and John Valade is the Chief Revenue Officer at Trustex. Moderating is Mika Bondi, Senior Vice President of Legal Affairs at HBO. The panelists share about what they do in their positions, how they got to where they are today, and the lessons they've learned along the way. They also talk about the importance of trust and integrity in leadership. Take a listen. Um, So I'm so excited about this panel. I think all of them have such interesting and different stories. Um, And none of them really, as far as I can see, followed what you would consider a traditional path. Um, And what I find interesting about this panel also is they all have these threads of, um, in their their careers, where they kind of combine a more strategic or visionary perspective on what their jobs and roles and what their company's mission was, but yet they were also able to go down low into the operational details and deliver results. And so I think that the ability to sort of zoom out at whatever level you are and being able to see the big big picture and see what the mission is and then yet be able to zoom down and actually deliver operational excellence and perform and deliver results is extremely important for you to succeed in your career. But I'm going to start by um, with Roz because I find it really interesting that we're here at a conference called Media and Entertainment and yet it's so much about technology these days. I think all of you, you're apparently called Generation Z. That's what people have labeled you, but you've all brought, um, when you were born, the internet was already there. Um, you could open up an iPad, you can, you can touch it an iPhone screen, and instantly information and entertainment is there. This is not how any of us uh, grew up at all, so it's just so interesting to see um, the convergence of media and technology in this day and age. And so Roz, you're sort of this prime example of this convergence because Roz is at TiVo, which is a technology company that is serving the media industry. So it's sort of a blend of looking at what's cool in technology, but also really what is interesting to consumers from a media perspective. And so I thought um, I would start with you, Roz, because you spent your career as a software engineer at Hewlett Packard and then Microsoft for many years. Um, But now that you're at TiVo, which is a technology company in the media space, what, what does the technology industry have to learn from the media industry? And how do they differ in their approach to the business, how they make decisions, how they treat people, how they create teams to drive results? Um, just wondering if there's a different environment and culture in a media company versus a technology company, and what are sort of some of the best practices or viewpoints that you've gotten from each? 
I think the thing that the technology companies can really learn from the media industry is that, you know, the media industry is really focused on what consumers want. You know, there's this sort of real kind of, um, you know, very, very sharp focus on, yes, you know, in order to deliver the profits and the business results, you have to give consumers what they want. And, it, you know, sometimes, not always, so I don't want to generalize too much, I think a lot of technology companies are really about building the technology because they think they have the answers to all the world's problems and they forget about their customers who are the consumers. So I think that's one thing that we can really focus on. And in my career, even though I've worked for you know, lots of major technology companies, I've always been the one that is about applying the technology to real world problems. You know, I'm not creating technology just for technology's sake. You know, sometimes you have real world problems that can't be solved by current technology. So you have to go invent technology in order to solve that problem. You know, in the, you know, so that, that's one thing that I've always kind of found different. And, you know, the other thing I will say, and, you know, at the danger of generalizing too much, the technology companies are mostly full of geeks. <laughs> it just is kind of true. And, uh, you know, I think it's, and, and also, there's not that many women in the industry. So, you know, when I walk into a meeting room, oftentimes I am the only woman in the room. And that's not true in the media industry, and it's totally refreshing. You know, I just really love that. And I think, Roz, for you, you, you were an engineer by training, but you seem to have always approached the uh, project or the mission in a more human way, it sounds like. And I sort of, I'm going to press you a little bit about what was it like to work as a woman in technology in these very male-dominated, geek-dominated, um, and you know, you're in an environment where they're probably incredibly intelligent scientists, engineers. I mean, I would be incredibly intimidated. How were you able to figure out what you could add to that conversation that was different than what some of the other people were adding? Well, first of all, I don't concede that I'm less of an intelligent scientist than they Fair are. Enough. Fair enough. <laughs> so that's number one. Number two, you know, I try to look at it from a very human perspective. It's not really about, you know, men versus women. It's just, you know, what, what is the perspective? Like, what are we trying to solve? And so I think I do bring that. But, you know, I will kind of go back just a little bit to, you know, I wasn't born in Hong Kong. And when I came to America when I was 10 years old, I became a minority. Because, you know, in Hong Kong, I wasn't a minority. So I've always been that minority in a dominant culture. So I got really good at bridging. And you know, that, that's what I do in these technology companies. I'm, I'm the bridge builder, you know, I'm the minority that has to learn all the different languages and cultures and habits and traditions of a different culture. And so I've done that all my life, you know, whether it was 
actually physically moving to a different culture or just, you know, being a computer science major when there's usually less than 20% in the, in the room are women and, you know, working at these big technology companies. So I, I learned to kind of speak two languages. I think that's really important for all of us to remember that we all have our own unique story and our own unique voice and being able to bring that to work is really important because that's, first of all, it'll make you happier um, at work, but also I think that's exactly why you're there, um, to bring that perspective. So don't be afraid you know, to share that perspective. Um, I'm gonna also, uh, on this theme of convergence of technology and media, I'm gonna move to John because John worked his, career, worked his way through his career mainly through, from an advertising sales um, path, which is what you might consider one of the more traditional paths in media, but he, he, started, he started at traditional media companies like NBC Universal, Discovery, and you also did a later stint at CBS. Um, but then he, he did a few detours. Uh, one was Hulu, and then a few other startups. Um, so I thought I would ask you, um, how, how did you find the cultures change and the perspective change as you move from a more traditional advertising kind of media company to more of a startup, whether it was a disruptor like Hulu or some of the other um, startups that you were at? Yeah, thanks, Mika. So <clears throat> first of all, when I joined Hulu, I had spent all my time at um, these big networks. And my, my dad, uh, I called my dad and I said, hey, dad, I'm going to work for a company called Hulu. And he said, Johnny, can, can't you get a real job? Like, what, what is that? <laughs> what did I know? What did we all know? Um, and I think that's kind of the point of, of what technology has done. I mean, I uh, started at NBC long ago when we were just trying to get cable networks distributed via satellite and via you know, new cable systems across the United States. The US was being wired coast to coast and then fiber optic cable took over. And, and the ability to deliver content on internet protocol was never something that people would rely on. In fact, I, we would be scoffed by technologists back in the day to deliver video over don't, IP. Don't ever let them do that. Right, Ross? Because <laughs> right? you're right. Yeah. And we were like, let's, let's go ahead and do this. So I think it's interesting because generationally now, we have become a generation that's screen agnostic, right? I mean, I, I have a research study, ongoing research study at my home. It's very sophisticated. One is 19 years old. The other is 17 years old. <laughs> We used, to test, we used to test stuff with Hulu. The CTO used to send us stuff and say, see if you can get your guys to break this on this gaming system or whatever. But I, I think what we've done is we've liberated uh, content through technology. And I never, many, many years ago, used to think that that would, would have happened. But I always paid attention to where technology was going. And um, Roz, to, to click back to something that you said earlier, we have technology platforms fundamentally doing moonshots now for us, right, Google? Facebook, Amazon, but what's the balance in terms of what the relationship is with the consumer? And I think Mr. Zuckerberg did his best job to talk about what the future of Facebook might have to look like and what they might be changing with regard to things like consumer privacy. So media companies have decades-long relationships with consumers, and with the new tech platforms, that's changed completely. So we're redefining the industry. We're redefining what it means to have a relationship with a consumer, what it means to, to use their data, to use their data with their knowledge, without their knowledge. I mean, these things are changing big time. So I would say that I probably was most surprised, Mika, at, at the velocity of change. 
and how everyone really embraced it, but also the responsibility to technology with, between the consumer and the media provider. And that includes things like fake news and other things, right? I mean, uh, we deserve better as consumers from these companies, and we need to continue to hold them responsible. And we're counting on this generation also to maintain that integrity in our media business. Very interesting. I'm going to press you a little bit, John, about to talk a little bit more about um, when you were at a traditional media company versus more of a startup environment, the culture, the approach to decision making, the approach to uh, going after business, the approach to generating revenue. I, I know that at more traditional media companies, you get to the top and then you're afraid of losing your position, right? So then you sort of get, you're afraid of making a mistake and the whole mindset behind it becomes very different than the mindset that got you there. The mindset that got you there was very entrepreneurial, innovative, taking risks. Then once you get to that top spot, oh crap, I don't want to lose this spot. Okay, so I better not do this because that, that'll mess that thing up. But if I, if I do this, that'll mess that thing up. So there becomes this um, culture of a little, a little bit driven by fear of making a mistake. So I just wondered if you felt that in those two different cultures and environments that you were in. Yeah, I've been blessed to have been exposed to a number of cultures uh, where you kind of have a line job and you're on a sales team and you have a list and you're calling on certain agencies or you're calling on cable operators and it's more methodical. This is your job, it's very well defined and you really have to go out and try to, try to find your own growth in those roles. And then I've also had roles where inside of the big company you find something entrepreneurial. And I think one of the keys is, and I know that we talk about mentoring, um, if you find something that you're passionate about within a company, especially a big company, you've got to find a mentor who can help you get to those new learnings. I think it's really, really important. On the flip side, startup, totally different deal. I mean, you're, <laughs> it's quantum growth, right? You're learning something every single day. And uh, with, with startups, especially now, it's trust but verify, right? I mean, make sure you know who you're working with. Make sure that you understand the vision and the mission. Make sure you understand how they're capitalized. Make sure you understand how the startup is governed. Uh, make sure that there are ethics going on in those startups. So they're very, very different environments. And I think one of the things that got me from big company to trying startups was Hulu, that transition to Hulu. Um, there was some backing there, but it wasn't going to be a slam dunk. Um, the, the networks basically made the investment in Hulu as a hedge against everything else they were seeing with regard to Netflix and other people that were making big investments in digital video. But I kind of got to spread my wings using both, both models, make it right. You get, the, you get the backing of the big broadcast networks, but there was a lot of risk involved. And then I took even more risk with some other stuff. Yeah, we'll get back to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm going to move to Anne. And, uh, you know, the, I, I had mentioned at the start of, the, of this uh, talk that each of these panelists had, throughout their career, exhibited um, both operational excellence, which is really more about attention to details, handing things on time, making sure that the wheels don't go off the road. Uh, but yet they were able to do it with a flavor of seeing the big picture, having a vision, being strategic about it, being able to motivate people towards a, a mission. Um, and so I wanted to turn to Anne, um, who is a very, it's very unusual to have the COO also be the general counsel anywhere. And, and I remember when I first saw that she had been promoted to this role, I was like, wow, if anybody could do this unique role, it would be Anne. Um, so I just wanted to ask you sort of how do you balance what I, I perceive to be a sort of dichotomous ways of thinking. So operational responsibilities would be more of a just get it done approach, right? I mean, I, I know that Facebook has a poster in their 
and they're play I haven't been to the Facebook campus, but they have a poster that says, done is better than perfect. You know, just like get the thing done. Speed matters. Um, but then w w when you're a general counsel, you have to do it right. Um, you have to do it right. It can't be done. It has to be more perfect than done. You know what I mean? So you, you have to be thoughtful and right about things. So for me, it, it, it almost represented a dichotomy. How do, you, how do you navigate those two sort of competing perspectives in your own mind, let alone with your staff? <laughs> um, I think uh, a lot of it comes from the fact that I came to my role as general counsel later in life. I actually worked for 20 years in production and programming and nonprofit arts administration. And so my entire life I was training to do things right, get it done, but also get it done right because we had very few resources. And so if you make a mistake when, you know, nonprofit media, in nonprofit and independent media, we had very little to work with. I worked at PBS, I worked in indie films, and we had really lean budgets. And so when we wanted to get things done, we really had to think creatively about how we wanted to um, execute. And so we kind of had to get it right or we were going to lose a lot and it would set the organization back tremendously. Um, I do have a lot of fights with myself <laughs> when I'm trying to operationalize something and put my counsel hat on. But I think because I came from uh, this operational role of sort of as a producer, as an arts administrator, um, I, uh, I also sort of understand the real world implications of what a contract should say. Uh, very often I found myself on the other side of the table of attorneys who had only been attorneys um, and hadn't necessarily had uh, experience in media or whatever we were negotiating. And so they would get hung up on these terms and sort of really get hung up on the on their clients' obligations, and I'm like, but that's not really going to happen. Like, the thing that you are worried about is actually probably never going to happen in this context because we've done these kinds of projects before. So um, while it's important to get it right, it's also important to take into account all of the factors um, and the environment in which you are trying to get this deal done. Yeah, and I think that's an important point because there are people who, you know, sort of um, rely on their principles, and I think principles are a good thing to have, but you also have to be very uh, um, pragmatic and practical and real world about the, about the solutions that you're creating. Um, so I'm, I'm going to move sort of the third theme that I found in reading each of their profiles and studying their careers, which has really been fascinating. Um, and the, the other thread that sort of each of these panelists share is the, that they, they value the notion of having integrity. Um, you know, it's not just about m making money, it's not just about getting a promotion, it's not just about, um, you know, the next achievement, the next award, but they all do things relating to making the world, honestly, a better place. So, John, I wanted to start with you in this era of Roseanne Barr and Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> Who are they? <laughs> I, don't, I just say the names and I don't even have to say anything more. Everybody knows the story, right, because of social media, it's all out there. Um, so these the, these issue, issues of truth, of doing the right thing, and being and what it means to be a leader are very much in the forefront of the American dialogue these days, uh, given our president, given the state of the world, um, and I, so for me it's, it's important to remember. And I remember um, a mentor of mine many years ago when I was a law firm said to me, you know, you carry your integrity everywhere you go. And his point to me, I basically screwed something up <laughs> at the law firm and had difficulty admitting my mistake. And so he just reminded me, like, it's not just about the success, but it's about doing good, 
and being true to yourself. Um, so, John, I wanted to kind of move to you because I know you have had a, a very successful career generating revenue for your companies and for yourself and getting to promotions and great titles and working with great teams. But then you, 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 you're now at this um, company called TrustX which, and um, Digital Content Next, which seems to be a mix of a commercial sort of enterprise balanced by doing the right thing. And so I wondered if you could sort of tell us about can you do good and do well? <laughs> Absolutely. I wouldn't be here if you couldn't. Um, and I mean that. Um, so uh, look, guys, in integrity and trust um, are important currencies. They've always been important currencies in life and in business. And um, now more than ever, we need to realize that as, as, as a country, as a media industry, as people. Um, my personal faith in Jesus Christ guides me every day in terms of servanthood leadership in these areas. And it's one of the reasons why I got connected with TrustX. I, there are a lot of things that I could have done in this business, could have gone back and worked for a traditional publisher, but I felt it important um, with the role of the industry and where we were headed to work for something that was going to help fix some major integrity problems that we have in the business. Um, and I don't know if we have time to show, to show the reel, but- yeah, Could we play the clip? Be an interesting introduction to TrustX. The last couple of years, programmatic has exploded uh, in many good ways, but also not so good ways. And clients have lost trust uh, in the open exchange. Uh, it's challenged with fraud, it's challenged with bots, it's challenged with viewability, it's challenged with a lot of things. Some of the key challenges we see in the programmatic market space, particularly around the open market, revolve around what I like to call inventory theft. It's misrepresentation of inventory by sellers, it's domain spoofing, it's bots, it's you know kind of lack of transparency within the open marketplace. I think that we have an opportunity in programmatic to turn around what it means to be in a premium environment, whether you're an advertiser, an agency, or a consumer. And TrustX is leading in that transformation. The key things that TrustX solves, number one, it creates a premium supply pool for a buyer. They know that everyone who's whitelisted and is part of TrustX is a quality publisher where they produce good content, they have low bot traffic, high human traffic. So what we're trying to solve for with TrustX is really combining the um, the engagement and the performance of premium content with the scale of a programmatic marketplace. It's based on um, an integrity in terms of how we do business. It's everything that they would expect when they come direct to a publisher, they can expect to get within um, TrustX. I would say TrustX is three things. It's trust, transparency, uh, and premium. You're only working with premium partners, you know where you're running, and you know exactly what you're getting. We are about creating a sustainable future for trusted advertising by restoring trust, transparency, and safety to the programmatic ecosystem. When you run with TrustX, you're running within content that is not only brand safe, it is brand enhancing. These are things that a lot of people talk about, but very few exchanges can deliver on. TrustX delivers on it, and that's why we're there. So, so what did we just see there? Um, what, what we see is an industry that's trying to stand up for, for integrity. Um, I talked about technology and the responsibility we have to make sure that things work right, that the consumers are treated right, advertising is treated right, buyers know what they're buying. Um, in the advertising industry, very simply, we have begun automating the purchase 
and sale of digital advertising. There are literally software platforms called programmatic automated platforms that buy and sell advertising all day and display and video. What has happened over the last few years, it, is, is it has been infiltrated by fraud and bot traffic and fake news and spoofed domains. So your identities might be stolen and pushed out and replicated thousands of times over and someone might sell you as a legitimate ad impression when you're not. Uh, a CBS domain might be spoofed as something else and sold off as CBS. So a couple of years ago, the publishers, the NBCs of the world, Washington Post, Fox News, they stood up and said, we've had enough and we need to create a more hygienic, sustainable future for digital advertising. So this is where Trustex comes in. The trade organization of digital content next, who represents 80 premium publishers across the industry, said rather than just talk about it, we're going to get these publishers together, we're going to create a marketplace for the entire industry to drive more integrity into what we're doing in these programmatic exchanges. So that's why I joined. I never dreamed of working for a trade organization, no offense to anyone, but I, when I heard about this opportunity and got recruited to, to work here, it was something that really spoke to me. Thank you. Uh, I think we're at the end of our program program. I had several more questions, but rather than me asking them, I'm going to open it up to the audience. Um, but feel free to ask them any question you'd like. Um, and if you don't have them, I have several that are ready to go. So I, are people supposed to come up to the microphone? So I saw a hand go up, so if you could make your way to the microphone. Thank you. Hi, how are you? Um, my name is uh, Weiwei, and I'm a grad student in, uh, at um, Northeastern University in Boston, and I'm from Beijing, China, originally. And uh, uh, I'm really into tech, then uh, I think uh, what be more kind of like immersive experience uh, will be applied in the uh, media, like virtual reality or mixed reality. And uh, I just wondering if uh, gonna be possible or like what's the trend gonna be? I'm gonna let Roz maybe yeah, take that I, one. I mean, I think that, that um, you know, I'm gonna go back to focusing on the consumer. I think that the tech is actually really close. I mean, I think we have good tech. Um, <laughs> what we need are people to create compelling reasons for consumers to want to use virtual reality. You know, I think, I mean, there's still problems with the tech. Like, nobody wants to wear weird glasses and, you know, for hours at a time. So right now, I think, you know, for gamers, it works pretty well. But, you know, it's pretty close. Like, that problem is going to get solved. I mean, we really literally need people that's going to think about how do I create a compelling world you know, for consumers. And then there's a whole bunch of like tech that goes between, as it always has been, actually media has always been served by technology. You know, getting all the bits at high quality to the right places at the right time to the right, all the devices, right? So there's a whole kind of technology chain that needs to happen. What really needs to happen is that great content, like let's find good reasons. And there's some practical ones out in the market that you could clearly see, like medical systems, you know, imaging, you know, remote doctors. Those are all like perfect examples, but there's, there's tons of entertainment ideas. You know, how do you create content if you had this technology to use? You know, what are you gonna create? 
Yeah, so going back to your earlier panel on the basic power of storytelling, right? It's just being able to tell a good story using that technology, but not using that technology to drive a bad story. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, and the answer to that question is probably, I would say within three to five years. You're really, I mean, I'm gonna actually answer that question. <laughs> Hello, hey, how's it going? My name's Christian Lucero, I'm from Texas. I just wanted to know, um, in terms of passion, we talked about it a lot, and I just want to know, like, how do y'all keep y'all passion throughout so many years? And, you know, what are some methods or ways or tricks that you use to change up your passion in order to make your day better, stuff like that? Um, well, I think one of the keys really is learning, was something that um, was stressed in the keynote earlier this morning. Um, you know, my day is never the same twice and never the same in the same hour. Like I go in thinking that I'm gonna do one thing and it's never what happens. Um, but also remembering that what I'm doing is connected to an entire industry and not to sound hokey, but also like the rest of the world. Like it's very easy to get caught up in the day-to-day -day work that you're doing. And so I think it's just really important to stay on top of like the context in which you're working um, so that you can identify other opportunities to learn and sort of bring that into your work. Because if you're not doing that, then yeah, you're going to get stagnant. Um, and I, <laughs> if you had told me that I was going to become a lawyer 20 years after working in media and that I'd be serving the city that I grew up in, um, in the industry that I'd worked in for 20 years, I would never have thought that. But it was just a series of sort of seeing opportunities and taking them, right? Not knowing necessarily where they're gonna lead me, um, but taking that leap of faith that this might be a great um, direction to go in and, and understanding that it might not work out and I might go somewhere else, but just being able to take those kinds of risks and um, again, just constantly trying to keep learning. Yeah, be, be ever curious. I mean, I, you know, I read lots of science fiction when I was growing up but, you know, Isaac Asimov, all of those have actually come to pass. You guys get to write the next set of science fiction, which is gonna be fact. Awesome, thank you. It's okay. Hi, Vera, I'm Wilson, undergrad student at Williams College, also from Hong Kong. <laughs> so I guess this question is picking up on something Ross said, but I'll open it up. So um, you said that the media industry is, or is supposed to be very focused on what consumers want and creating such things. So how savory do you think of a product is representation now and how do you think is, um, rep is the media industry, the tech industry doing in terms of responding to people who want representation? Because um, I think uh, as recently as even now there have been calls for a lot of fair representation of people of color, of Asians, Asian Americans, of queer, of queer folks in the media. And yeah, so how do you think they've been doing and how do you think it's gonna do in the future, in the foreseeable future? John, I don't know if you wanna. Or yeah, I mean, look, I, I think technology has democratized the ability for a lot of voices to get out there with an incredible amount of diversity. And it, it's up to people to continue to push that envelope. Um, 
but it, it's a good question and it's very important. And, and by the way, it's important to the commercial aspect of, of our business as well. I mean, I, you know, we need to reach all different types of people with all different types of voices. I, I, I would probably add also that I feel like we're at such an interesting time. On the one hand, there's so much uh, dispute and dissent out there because there's just ugly talk all over the place. But on the other hand, it's driving people to realize what is important to them, and those people are working to make change. So I've, even myself, have in the past few years gotten involved with Asian American causes in media, um, women's related causes in media, and I think all of our panelists do work in the diversity space, um, at, both inside our organizations and outside of the organizations. So I think that will, be, that will help, um, and as more um, minority candidates rise up the ranks, There'll be, I mean, just think about Roseanne Barr and the head of ABC is an African-American woman. And she said, I'm not, I'm not doing that. Um, and she did it at great cost to ABC. She did it extremely quickly. I mean, honestly, I was shocked that they made that decision so quickly. But she realized that number one, no matter what, she's gonna do the right thing for her as a person. And number two, she ultimately did that also because she thought that the, that was the right decision for her company and her company's brand. So I think that there, I feel like there's a surge in media at very senior levels where people are feeling exactly what you're saying and they're trying to make a difference. I also hear though um, sort of an underlying frustration in the terms of like the pace at which this is happening, right? And believe me, I know I've been waiting for the great Asian American superhero um, to come out, right? Like I'm the waiting for that one. Great um, Asian American. But at the same time, I recognize that we are really in a different time. Like I never thought I was gonna turn on the television and see interracial couples like selling life insurance. Like that's a whole new thing. <laughs> you know, like that was not something that I grew up with. And I, I know that sounds probably really basic to to this generation that's grown up in a much more open space. I mean, the technology has opened up spaces and access to other cultures and opinions. It's also created, I mean, we can't go into that right now, it's created silos, but um, you know, now when someone says something like Roseanne, like the response is immediate. And so people are listening. And so it's, it's really, I actually think it's a very exciting time. Um, I think we're gonna see um, much more significant change much more quickly, but it is going to be up to this generation to sort of keep folks honest and not lose sight of where we want to end up. So, thank you. We have, we're done. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Future Now Media Podcast. You can also follow us on our Facebook page, as well as on Instagram and LinkedIn. Till next time, I'm Peggy Kim. And remember, a future now is a future one.